0: Hello friends. Welcome back to another episode of Old Testament in the raw. This is week three of the Sunday school class that I've been teaching. And in this lecture slash lesson slash discussion, whatever you want to call it. I feel weird calling it a lecture. Um, It's more than a discussion because it's mostly me talking. So it is sort of a teaching time. Anyway, this week we Dug into Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I began by summarizing some key things that we talked about last Sunday in Genesis 1, uh, namely, how Genesis 1 emphasizes the transcendence of God while also elevating the high status of humanity in the declaration in Genesis 1, to 28, that humanity is created in God's image. So we began uh, this Sunday, teasing that out a little bit, talking about the idol background to the concept of being created in God's image, that it's sort of playing off of the well-known theme in the Old Testament that humans are not to, uh, supposed to worship idols. And yet, the very word image of God, image of God, uh, plays off of that theme of idolatry. And also only kings in Egypt are created in God's image, according to the ancient Near East mindset. And so we teased that out a little bit as well. Then we dug into Genesis 2 and emphasized, or at least drew, drew out different ways in which Genesis 2 Emphasizes the personalness or the imminence of God, and we looked at several things there in Genesis two. We we uh, looked at a map where the possible location was for the Garden of Eden. We also looked at um, a major theological point um, in the connection between the Garden of Eden and later uh, the later Tabernacle Temple. Um, even the person of Jesus and also the church. And then finally, we looked at Genesis three and the nature of the fall and Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. So I hope you enjoy this uh, lecture, this Old Testament in the raw episode. Um it did th- so the the recording, um again, is is, you know, I, I recorded on a little, $10 lapel mic. It's it's not a high quality um, uh, microphone. And I, I am exploring getting a more high quality mic in the near future uh, for this class. But until then, we we're, we're stuck with kind of some low level, low quality sound, but it, it comes out okay. It's there's some background noise and stuff, but it's you can you can understand things uh, fairly well. It did cut out about a minute before I actually finished. So this uh, at the end of this episode, it does kind of it just cuts out, <laughs> um, but you didn't miss much. It was basically the, the end of class. We're kind of bantering around uh, over a, a couple different things, um, and then it just cut out. I don't know why it cut out, um, but uh, yeah, you, you didn't miss. You missed basically a minute of uh, the final discussion, which, which isn't much. So without further ado, uh, welcome to Old Testament in the Raw, week three, where we dig into Genesis chapters two and three. to class is it weird to say class i feel like um i need to take roll or something but welcome to ot uh, dive um, which i might actually change the name to old testament in the raw why don't i just call old testament in the raw right so anyway old testament in the raw uh we are um we're gonna be in genesis 2 and 3 today so uh let me click out of this and just make sure the recording is happening It's still going. Okay, so I should be good. Uh, Just by way of review, so last week we looked at, we didn't get out of Genesis 1. We're looking at the the main theological message of Genesis 1 was to proclaim the transcendence of God. Now, I, I touched on this, but even this morning when I was kind of going over things, I was like, I don't know if this was really that clear um, but I think it'll be clear today um, and, and that is the fact that you know I'm, let me put a different color here the, the Elohim is used of God over and over and over and over and over in, in Genesis 1 but we're going to see something change in Genesis 2 now uh, does anybody know the difference between Elohim and Yahweh how would you describe the difference between Elohim as a reference to God, and Yahweh as a reference to God. We're actually going to get into this in more detail in a few minutes, so I could just delay it. But there, there's a difference here. They're not just, like, synonyms. Yeah. Is Elohim, like, the created,
1: creator, God, things what,
0: what, what, as they are, you know, and a little bit of love? Oh, okay. Um, that That might be... That's not, that that might be part of what Yahweh is, but that might, I think that would probably fall more under Elohim. Oh, Elohim, yes, 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 yes. The the bigness, the transcendence of God. Uh, Well, so Yahweh is like a personal name. Elohim is describing like what God is. Uh, Yahweh is who God is. Elohim is what God is. Or to make an analogy, you know, my name is Preston. And I am, I don't know, let's see, uh, right now let's just say I'm a teacher, okay, so this is kind of like what I am, what I am doing, um, but Preston is my personal name, okay, and then throughout scripture there's actually many, many different descriptions of God, there's Jehovah Jireh, there's, you know, um, and that's actually, it should be like Yahweh Yirah, um the, the God who I think sees, is that the, oh no, that's a different one, anyway, there's, there's lots of little descriptions of God throughout uh, scripture, the most common ones are Elohim, which is just a generic word for God, it's the same as our English G-O-D, just a divine being, whereas Yahweh is his personal name. But I want to come back to that because really, it's really important that Yahweh is used throughout Genesis 2 while Elohim is used throughout Genesis 1. It, I think that's on purpose. And then uh, I'm just kind of reviewing some uh, what we talked about last week. We, we uh, looked at the debate of the, you know, the, day, the, the meaning of day in Genesis 1, the age of the earth, and, and I purposely didn't want to get too deep there because I think, First of all, I'm not, you know, the most well-equipped one to navigate that conversation. And secondly, it's just the one thing we can all agree on. It's not the main point of the original, the original point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to give us like an, the age of the earth. That, that is more of a modern question we have about the text, which doesn't mean it's not significant. It just means it's not, if we're trying to understand wh- what is the original author trying to tell us here, it's, it's not to give us clear um, clarity on the age of the earth. Um... And then we, I looked at these four points that uh, emphasize the transcendence of God in Genesis 1. And then we ended by talking about the creation of humanity in the image of God. And then we explored a little bit what that means, the image, image of God. I mean, that, that really is... Um, it's one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture, that, that humans are created in God's image. And so I, I don't want to get too bogged down here, but I mean, I really could. I, 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 we're only spending a few minutes talking about what it means to be created in God's image. And I don't want you to think that just because we're spending a few minutes, that reflects the importance of this term or concept. It's just we have to. We got We're only in one chapter. We got a lot of chapters left in the Old Testament. So, so I don't want to be here till I'm like 84. Um, necessarily. So, so that, that's why I'm kind of like giving a few thoughts on the image of God, but man, I would just highly encourage all of us really just to kind of just on in your own time reading meditation study to, to really dig into this concept. Well, you know, what's interesting is the same word used of image here that mankind is created in God's image. It's the same word used to describe idols throughout the rest of the, the Old Testament. We are God's idols. And it's like, whoa, whoa, is that okay? Like, this just sounds kind of heretical. Like, what does that mean? Well, think about it. What's the function of an idol, like, like, a, like a statue? You know, when people would worship an idol, they, they didn't actually think that that idol was a divine being. It's that that idol was a physical, visible representation of an invisible divine being. Does that make sense? So, like, if they were worshiping an idol that represented, say, Baal or um, Marduk or Molech or some of these gods, we, we you know, these, these f- fake gods that we read about in the Old Testament, the physical statue, they didn't think that that was the God. They just worshiped that statue as a representation of, of the God. So the function of an idol is, is to give us a visible representation, a visible picture of a divine being. So in, a, in that sense, Humans are Yahweh's idols on earth. That's one of the reasons why we shouldn't worship other gods or other idols because we are gods, in a sense, idols. We are the, the, visible, the, the visible manifestation of Yahweh on earth. Here's another thing is we talked last week about uh, tribal deities that in the ancient mindset... Uh, in the ancient mindset, you had, you know, uh, certain gods that people worshipped were believed to have jurisdiction over certain parts of the land. You know, um, Baal kind of in the north, Marduk in the east, in Mesopotamia, Babylon area, and then, and then Egypt had their own gods. And so the idols sometimes would be set up in just that part of the land. Okay. So, so think about this. God, God creates humans as his sort of idols, his, the, the, the physical representations of God on earth, and then what he, he tells us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He wants humans to spread all around the earth so that people know that Yahweh has jurisdiction over the whole creation. And then this is one thing, one reason why when humans gather together um, in Genesis 11... Uh, and build the tower of Babel. God wants them to spread over the earth, and then they hunker down and gather in one place. And it's like that's going against God's command to spread over the whole earth, because God wants the whole earth to be filled with His idols, His His you know visible representations, so that people know He rules over the whole thing. Also, idols or the whole phrase "image of God." So, so it's kind of playing off of this theme of of idolatry. And, and again, I say. Uh, <laughs> Every time I say idolatry it just sounds negative like how can a human be so but again we re- we are the visible representations of God on earth. Also in, in especially in Egypt um, the pharaohs and the, the you know the, the pharaohs the kings of Egypt they were sometimes described as bearing God's image so in the ancient world the only kind of human figure outside the bible that was described as bearing god's image was a male king like the the highest of the highest, the one on the pit, the top of the pyramid. I guess almost literally, because we're talking about Egypt. But um, you know, the the one on the top of the social hierarchy, this this male king. Sometimes they would be described as bearing God's image, but nobody else. I mean, that, there's no way the the lower people, you know, would be described as bearing God's image. So the fact that Genesis one says that all humans, male and female, bear God's image, it's almost like giving us. Um, well, this is why you know I. This is why. This is all leading up to why I, I said that. You know, when we talk about the image of God, it, it means that humankind has has an exalted status, a, a kingly-like status. Especially, I mean, Israel's hearing these words, and they just come out of Egypt, where the pharaohs for 400 years were called God's image bearers. You know, and then now they're told that no, your God sees all of you. You've been slaves for 400 years, and even though you've been slaves, you're, you you bear God's Image. It's a a profound, profoundly elevating um, concept. So, um, and and then at the end of Genesis 1, and if you you have your Bibles, it'd be good to maybe just have them open to Genesis 1, Genesis 2 area, because we're going to be pointing out some some things in the text. Um, At the end of Genesis 1... Uh, yeah 126 so let us make uh, man in our image according to our likeness and uh, they will rule or some, some translations say let them rule over the fish of the sea the birds of the sky the livestock and all the earth let these humans who bear God's image uh, rule over creation now again that this doesn't mean that you know we uh, that we are kings independently, that we rule over creation, you know, under our own authority or power, but we are mediating God's rule over the earth. So this is, this is like fundamental to why God creates us. He, he wants us to represent him on the earth, and he wants us to mediate his rule over, over the earth. So there's, there's two, um, kind of two different ways in which people can take this in wrong directions. Some people want to emphasize uh, humanity's, you know, lowliness. We're just worms. We're dust. We're nobody. We're, you know, woe is me. And it's like, okay, that's that can be a healthy aspect of our relationship with God. We are not God. We are created. He is our king. But we still have a very elevated status, okay? so So we don't want to make a, an error... In viewing humanity as, as, you know, just nothing down here, we're worth nothing, we're worthless, you know. Well, wait a minute, no, we're here. we're created in God's image, like we're worth a ton. Because, you know, if we're, if we're worthless, then what does that say about the price <laughs> that God paid to purchase us? Like, <laughs> he, he spent a lot to redeem us, so which means we do have an inherent worth. Now, the other mistake is to, is to elevate us too high. To forget that we are mediating God's rule over the earth. To think that we, you know, we can do whatever we want with creation, however we want, in whatever ways we want. Like, no, we are still submissive to uh, the creator and, and how he wants us to rule over the earth. Um. Okay, let, Let's. Any, any questions so far? So all that's just kind of like review, some are just getting us kind of warmed up, letting other people show up and everything. Yeah? I missed last
2: sorry, but... Okay, yeah, yeah. Verse
0: 26 here, uh, God says, let us be will. Yeah. And did you, you cover No, no, I didn't. No, thank you for asking that. Um, well, yeah, us, the plural of God here. Um, now, the, the, the quick and easy answer to this would be, well, this is referring to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is not you know, he's, he's one God, but three persons within that one God, um, that would be an easy, uh, direction here. And, and, you know, I would probably say that I think that's probably what's going on, but, but I always want to just, I don't want to read into the text something that's easy, you know, based on my presuppositions. I want to just truly say, well, because the biggest question here is like, well, wait a minute, what do the Jews say about this? (laughs) I mean, this is in the old Testament, not the new, like, do we have really a clear Trinity statement right here in Genesis one? So there, I mean, there are, um, so, so some people say, well, this is God and the angels, the us is the angels. But the problem with that is we're not, nowhere does it say that angels bear God's image and they're not on par with God as, as a, a creating deity. Um, other people say it's just more of a plural, like, um, uh, a plural of majesty, meaning sometimes, um, you do this in writing, right? In writing, sometimes you'll say, like, today we're going to get into this topic, whatever, and some, sometimes we use we to refer to ourselves in, in a singular sense. So Some people say it's that. <laughs> um, but no, I, yeah, I mean, I think it is a, uh, a rather subtle, but not so subtle reference to And and let's just not, let's not be so specific, because Trinity, do we really know Trinity from Genesis 1 alone? Well, not really, but what this does so is there's some kind of plurality within this, this divine being. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So,
1: I was wondering, like, Elohim and Yahweh, um, in the Bible, they'll have, like, capitalized T and lowercase T. Is Elohim lowercase because it's not a proper noun?
0: no oh that's a good question that, honestly the, the uppercase lowercase you know some, some translations will refer to God with he some will just say he that, that's nothing more than just a decision by the English translators yeah what, what, you, what you do see though is when you see uppercase L-O-R-D that English all uppercase is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh so, yes, yes, yes. But some translations, like, I think mine, yeah, mine capitalizes pronouns referring to God, he, us, um, other. I think the um, the ESV, Barclay, do you have an ESV? The English Standard Version, I think, uses lowercase for God. And that, that doesn't mean that they're, like, diminishing God's glory. Quite the opposite. I mean, the, the translators are not, you know, the very high view of God. But sometimes using uppercase pronouns can be really kind of clunky just in in how often you have to do it. So, um, yeah. Hey. Okay, so um, I want to... So again, transcendence of God, Genesis 1. Now, I said Genesis 2 emphasizes the personalness of God, the the imminence of God. And let's... um, uh, let's talk about that for a second. If you go to... I'm glad you brought that up, because this is exactly where I wanted to go next. Look at Genesis 2-4. And, and even... Um, I'm just going to kind of glance back at Genesis one and following. You know, it says, God blessed him, and God said, and verse 29, God also said, and verse 31, God saw that he... Had made it all and it was good. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 2, by the seventh day, God completed. Verse 3, God blessed. This is just Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. Look at Genesis 2, verse 4. Remember, 2, 4 is a transition verse. What stands out here in Genesis 2, 4? In, 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 in terms of God. God
1: used
0: yes. Yes. Now you see capital L-O-R-D, then G-O-D. So this is, in the Hebrew, it would be Yahweh Elohim made the earth and heavens. Now, just glance through your text. Every single reference to Elohim now is prefaced with Yahweh. Every single time. It's, it's uh, 20 times, actually, In in Genesis two, you do not see Elohim by itself in Genesis two. You only see Elohim by itself in Genesis one. You don't see this L O R D Yahweh never occurs in Genesis one. You think this is intentional? (laughs) Well, of course it is. Like this is, there's. I mean, statistically, it just. It's not like it just. You know, he happened to. You know, only use Yahweh. But if you, I mean, over and over and over, God never stands alone. The word God never stands alone in Genesis two. It's always prefaced by Yahweh. Now, again, Yahweh is God's personal name. And in the ancient world, and if you've read the Old Testament, or even New Testament, you see that n- names kind of mean, are, are a big deal. When somebody reveals their name to, their personal name, like that is a bridge to relationship. Or, it can, I mean, it can signal all kinds of things, like Dan- Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Uh, It's kind of odd that we refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because those are the Babylonian names given to, oh gosh, Azariah, uh, help me out, anybody, the Daniel, huh? Yeah, yeah, that. (laughs) See, I forgot the Hebrew, that's horrible, like, they have these beautiful Hebrew Yahweh worshiping names, and then, they're taken to exile, and then they're changed to Babylonian names, and now we only know them. Well, I mean, that's what's in the text over and over. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But, um, I mean, think there's all throughout Scripture, you know, Peter's changed from Cephas to Peter, and, and um, gosh, throughout the Old Testament. There's just, uh, Abram is changed to Abraham, uh, father of many nations. It's, there's just such a deep, deep significance to names, In the biblical world I mean in the Bible but also just in the ancient world as a whole your name really means something Isaac means laughter because Sarah laughed uh, in the tent when in her old age she was told that she was gonna have a child and uh, Jacob actually means cheater (laughs) or one who you know grasps at something that's not his own Um, he grabbed onto the heel of his brother So the names mean... Names are significant. The fact that here, God, this Elohim, this transcendent being, is now being referred to over and over by his personal name, that is one way in which the personalness of God um, is being emphasized in Genesis 1. Also, look at the way God acts in Genesis 2 compared to how he acts in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1... God is just breathing. He's speaking the universe into existence. He's a very transcendent being who's who's just kind of out there, and he's just hurling the universe into existence. But now, I mean, we see him playing in the dirt. <laughs> I mean, this whole idea of being formed—he formed Adam from the dust. This this word "formed" is often used of an of an artist. Um, like a like a sculptor. Uh, oh gosh, sculpt. Is that how you spell a sculptor? Anyway, like like somebody who's like a potter who's 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 intimately involved with with his with his clay and, and his. And I've got r- stories of the old movie Ghost in my mind, but I got. Um, it's, it, it, it's, very, it's it's a very it's a very. It's a literally a hands-on picture of what God is is doing here. He's forming. He didn't speak Adam into existence. He was he's crafting him into his masterpiece. Then he he, it's almost like he grabs his face and breathes into his nostrils like that. That's a very face-to-face intimate thing to do. I mean, have you ever you know? Next time you're in the elevator, turn to your person in there and just breathe into their nostrils, right? <laughs> um, he looked and he sees uh, the, the man, Adam, and he sees that he's in need. He, he needs a, a um, some translations will say helper. Um, and so he provided somebody to come alongside Adam. This word helper, i got, I got to clarify that one too. Um, in Genesis 2.18... Uh, My translation says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. The the Hebrew word helper, I forgot what it is. But uh, this is, yeah, this is a fact. Uh, The Hebrew word for helper is used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to God helping israel through military intervention okay so like Israel's like going into battle and they're getting beat and they're like ah, oh, run away you know and they're they're running away and then it, then it says that god intervenes to help israel okay so so all my whole point is the word helper helpmate is not a derogatory term for women if anything if anything, it's the opposite. It's like God looks down at Adam and says, Oh my gosh, you really need some help. I'm going I'm to create you know, a, a woman to come alongside you. So, um, Because again, we, the, the, our leading statement is in 127. Male and female created in God's image. But again, the point here is that, that God, the, the, this, this transcendent divine being is intimately involved in his creation. Th- this verse really blows me away. In 2.19... It says that um, the Lord God, Yahweh God, Yahweh Elohim, formed out of the ground every wild animal. Which again, this shows that, this is the same phrase, he formed Adam from the dust. He also formed the animals. He he was intimately involved in creating the animals as well. Um, And every bird of the sky. and And then it says that this Yahweh God, this transcendent being Yahweh brought each one to the man to see what he would call it. That, I mean, th- this would almost, well, apart from if, if all we had was Genesis 2, we, we, we could err on the side of having almost a low view of God because he's so intimately involved in his creation. He's bringing these animals to Adam and then he's standing back and he's like waiting to see what Adam's going to call the animals. What are you going to name this, you know? So he's bringing these animals, sitting in front of Adam, and Adam's like, you know, you know, cat. <laughs> and then the thing goes, you know, huff, huff. and God's like, well, we can go with cat if you want. Oh, maybe dog. Yeah, yeah, let's go with dog, you know? And um, so, so even here, and this plays off of Adam and Eve mediating god 's creation, like mediating god 's rule over creation so so God here is he 's creating the animals, but then he 's letting adam name name the animals so god, so Adam is almost like involved with the whole kind of um, ongoing work of of creation so again. Uh, Je, je, I just, so Genesis 1, transcendence of God. Genesis 2, intimacy, personalness of God. These two umbrella categories of who God is, I think, make sense of the rest of Scripture. Our view of God needs to be in this I- interplay between, not, it, I, uh, Needs to, needs to honor both aspects of God, the greatness, the kingship, the sovereignty of God, but also that closeness, that intimacy, that friendship of God. In my, my, in my experience, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it will resonate with this, I feel like all of us typically gravitate towards one aspect of God more than the other. Some of us, when it comes to God's sovereignty as kingship, it's like, that makes sense, that comes easy, and, and maybe understanding God as a close friend, being intimate with us, is is really harder for us. Other people, maybe it's a vice versa. They, they can talk with God and walk with God, commune with God, but thinking that God is a sovereign, otherworldly cr- creator being is, is a bit harder. Me personally, I, for, for me, it's the intimacy of the, the closeness of God that I have a hard, harder time with. Uh, when I first became a Christian 25 years ago, like... Yeah. You know, to me, I was like, if I'm gonna, if if there's a God, then He must be King over everything, and I, I just need to keep my head down and just not make Him mad. You know, it's kind of, kind of my, my default posture. Which again, that, that's an error, maybe on the side of elevating the transcendence of God, but not seeing Him as a close friend. Um, and maybe some people would have the opposite struggle of seeing God as as King. Um, make sure I didn't forget anything here. Any uh, thoughts, questions while I check my phone and see if this recording is still mm-hmm. going? Yes, it's still going. One of the
1: things that I had read was the things that God named, he has dominion over. And the things that man named, he had dominion over. And I wonder if that also plays into the relationships. So when we see nature, yeah. um, stars, and um, it's easy to see how big God is. Yes. And... But when we are relating to things that man names, animals and people, yeah. um, that's where that relationship stuff comes in. So maybe if where you gravitate
0: to is where it, those things where you connect with God most. Yeah. I, I've never thought about it like that. I, I, it is true that the one who names something has the authority over that, or, or uh, that that is true. Um, but you're. Your kind of application of that—I've never thought—I've never thought about that. That's in, no, it's interesting. Uh, I have to think about that more. I don't—I don't want to say yes or no. <laughs> and well, I will say um, just on that note on the naming thing, yeah, because God names kind of the universe, the stars, the moon, like He's authority over that, but then He, he delegates the naming to Adam to name the animals, which shows that he has authority over there. Here's where it gets a little tricky. Okay, you ready for this? We me get into some controversial. <laughs> um, he, in Genesis 3, 20, Adam names his wife. So does that mean that Adam has some kind of like God-like authority over his wife? Don't, don't answer, don't answer, just wrestle. Um, and I, so some people say, yes, absolutely, this solidifies kind of male headship, men rule over women. But then other people want to point out, well, this is in the Genesis 3, this is part of the curse. <laughs> so that maybe Adam's response here is he's kind of like throwing his weight around in, in more of a negative way, because everything here is kind of in the wake of his sin. I and I don't I Scott's got something Scott help us out here. Um and we're getting a little bit down the road but
2: Yeah you know, I just listen to different commentaries is everybody has and yeah often you know, wondered like is uh or I should say what I've heard word argument is steward is, is a better word like what you, you know you look at the environment and the animals like yeah. stewarding them because clearly we don't have control um uh, over it, you know, nor the environment. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, really little, like, to steward our wives.
0: So it's not rule with a heavy hand. It is to well, like what Ephesians five says: husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's a sacrificial giving up kind of. It's just another commentary. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's that's. Um, yeah. I, I I don't I don't see. Yeah. No. That's good. So. In the same way that God, that Adam's called to steward and care for creation, that maybe that's what is being emphasized here. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, he names woman. He names Eve in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 2, he names her woman in uh, 23. The last, man explained, both of my bones, flesh my flesh. She should be called woman. So he names her yeah. too,
0: uh, not just after the fall. Yeah. Well, the only thing there, though, is that, he, you know, she shall be called woman. Yeah, it, it's hard. Like, is he kind of calling her that or is he just declaring that she will be, you know, like, is he coming up with that name or yeah, is it? it depends on the translation. Line, yeah, but called, but she shall be. Yeah, um, yeah, no, but this one sh- will be called. I think there's so in, in three in three twenty, it's more it's it's more. Explicit, like he named his wife this, whereas the other one is just kind of more of a declaration that this is what she is. Um, so yeah, it could be. I, I mean, uh, I think some people—I would have to go back and check. Some people may point to this, saying, "No, this is a pre-fall naming of 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 the woman." And there, yeah, in Genesis two twenty-three, it's a it's a play off of. Um, so the Hebrew word for man is Ish, and for woman it's Isha. He, he, you know, so it's a kind of a play on words almost to show that they're both, they share common humanity, but they are different as, as well. Um, just a couple things about the Garden of Eden. Um, we don't really know exactly where the Garden of Eden was. Um, and... Also, when you're dealing with a a pre-fall or sorry pre-flood geography, we're we're on um, we're kind of in unknown territory here because the flood wasn't just um, a bunch of rain. It also says like the fountains from the deep opened up, and some people think that you know how the um, all the land was kind of in one area, and then according to some theories, you know, it slowly drifts apart, and you can even see how. South America and Africa fit together. And, I, and I, I'm not a geologist, but some people say during the flood, what what science has shown to be a slow drifting apart during the flood was kind of a cataclysmic, like just rearranging of the whole earth, you know. Um, and again, this is going above my knowledge here. But, but what I would say is any kind of pre-flood search for anything, you know, where was the Garden of Eden? What was east of Eden where, you know, Cain got banished to and everything? We're, we're, we have to... Hold this with um, an open hand. But we do have reference to the Tigris and Euphrates in the Garden of Eden, which is interesting because these these are the same um, rivers. Okay, so this is a... Let's go to... I'll go to red here. So here is the Tigris River. Okay. And here is the Euphrates River. And just so... just. So you have your geography. Um, So some people say that Eden was down here. This would be modern-day Kuwait, actually. Um, Other people put it up here, where the Tigris and Euphrates are coming together again. And just so you know what we're looking at here, so this is the land of Canaan. This would be modern-day Israel. and I think it goes something like like this or whatever. Um, So you have uh, Lebanon up here. Syria is kind of over here. Okay, and then over here is uh, Babylon, is around this region, and then Assyria, I don't like to abbreviate Assyria for obvious reasons, Assyria is up here, just kind of north of Babylon, and, and Ur of the Chaldees is, is down, oh, where is Ur, Ur is kind of almost where, uh, this is where Abraham's from, Ur, it's more kind of in, in where Eden might, might have been. Um, But just to give you kind of like, you know, because the Tigris and Euphrates are mentioned, it's got to be somewhere in this in this region, you know, Uh, just yeah, Mount Ararat is where they that's where the um, uh, where the ark ended up landing after after the floods it landed on on Mount Ararat up in modern day uh, Armenia area. So I, I've got a little bit of Armenian blood in me, and so we're all proud of being the place where <laughs> um, the ark might have landed. Uh, theologically, okay, here, here is, um, again, so remember our historical, uh, moral, and theological lenses we're reading scripture. It's, I think it's good to ask questions about the history, the geography, what's going on here, so we understand maybe the text better, but we don't want to stop there. Even if we found remains of Noah's Ark, and, and and missed the theological point of this flood story, I think that that would be in, insufficient. Um, I think it'd be fascinating. It'd be cool to have a little piece of Noah's Ark, but um, we have not found we have not found the remains of Noah's Ark. But um, so so with the Garden of Eden, he, here's what's fascinating is. And I think I have this written out in some of your notes if you had it from last week. But uh, if not, um, I'm going to try to make the. Here's what I'm going to try to do for future is maybe just post the notes on my website so that you all can go and take them and download them, whatever, and and catch up on old ones and get new ones rather than me kind of printing out uh, notes every week. So there are clear connections between... The way the Garden of Eden is described and how later uh, the, the later tabernacle and temple is described. I, I mentioned this last week, kind of in passing a little bit, or maybe it was a week before. Might have been the very first week. Um, so, so there's um, and, and I've got evidence here, but I, I don't it's kind of boring to kind of like read all of this. Um but let me just mention a couple things. So, like uh, the gold and onyx, the, these these jewels, kind of mentioned in Genesis two verses eleven to twelve, these are the very same stones used to decorate the tabernacle and the priestly garments. Later on, when the priest has has like garments made, they are given clothing that reflects the Garden of Eden. In um, both Eden and the tabernacle are entered from the east, and both are guarded by the cherubim. We see cherubim here in Genesis 3 to keep Adam from coming back in the garden, lest he eat from the tree of life and live forever. Uh, we also see cherubim later on in the tabernacle, these statues of these angelic beings kind of guarding God's presence again. Cherubim, God, cherubim guard God's presence in, in Eden, the, the the same creatures, or at least representations of the creatures, um, guard God's presence in uh, in the tabernacle. So, and I, there's lots of other pieces of evidence here, but this is something you see a lot in the Bible when when two events or places or even people are kind of associated, then then these people, events, or people people events or places kind of mutually interpret each other. So. We know, again, that, um, uh, well, let me put this up on here real quick. Yeah, so Eden, the place where God and humans perfectly commune with each other, enjoy each other's presence, this becomes almost like a, uh, the, the prototype, um, the forerunner, a foreshadow of God later meeting with his people in, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And so when Jesus calls himself, you know, uh, he refers to himself on several occasions as the temple, you know, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it again. He refers to himself <laughs> as the temple. Or, and then after Jesus ascends to the father and, and now we have the church, the body of his followers, and they're referred to in like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians as, as the temple of the living God. We even refer to ourselves as, you know, our bodies are the temple, you know, so don't eat too much bacon, right? (laughs) Take care of yourself. Um, But it's more than just a a random connection. It's actually saying that in the same way that God wanted to commune with his people in the Garden of Eden, you know, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus. And now the church is kind of that place where the creator Yahweh wants to commune with with his people. It's all about relationships. Relationship between God and and humans. Um, oops. No, 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 no. I had more to say here. Let's see. Huh? It's not popping up. Anyway, does that make sense? I know it's a, that might be a little bit like oh, I need to get my mind around that. But um, any questions about that? Eden? Eden stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the fall uh, in Genesis 3. Uh, let me just read the read first... Um, I'll read the first seven verses, okay? So, um, <clears throat> now the serpent... Oh, there's so many just interesting things here. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that Yahweh God, the Lord God, had made. Uh, who is the serpent? The devil, okay. That's true. But you know what? We don't actually know that until we don't, the Bible never actually says that until the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. In Revelation, I think it might be chapter 12, talks about the serpent that was in the garden and that was the devil. It actually explicitly says that, but nowhere in Genesis 3 or in Genesis or in the Old Testament does it explicitly make that connection. Now, again, again, I think it's true. This is Satan. Um, uh, But it's interesting that the original readers of this wouldn't necessarily have made that that connection. Um, Was it Satan as a snake? Or was it uh, just a random snake that was like indwelt by Satan? I mean... We just, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns here. We just don't know. It's also interesting that when it says he said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree of the garden? The woman doesn't say, oh my goodness, I got a snake talking to me. She just responds, well, we may eat from the tree. (laughs) That's kind of funny. You got a talking snake, and she just starts talking with them. And. But does this mean I'm just going to throw out questions? I'm not going to answer them. It might be frustrating, but I don't. I just there's certain things I don't have the answer. Does this kind of give the impression that animals talked before the fall? I I don't know. Um, it's just kind of odd that you have a snake that's talking and she just carries on a conversation with this Hebrew speaking snake or that wasn't Hebrew. Probably I don't know what they spoke back then. But. So um, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, uh, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. But uh, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Uh, did God actually say don't touch it? <laughs> no. no. So she's. I don't know. and I don't know. What to, you know, she's, she's adding a little bit here to God's word. Maybe making him sound like more of a, you know, uh, mean, you know, uh, God than than he really is. Like, don't even touch it. She's adding to the original command. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wouldn't that be a good thing to know good and evil? We'll come back to that phrase, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit, ate it, and she also gave some to her husband. Where is is her her husband, by the way, when this talking snake came slithering in the garden? um, Who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So you have this uh, shame that comes over them. Because in the last verse in Genesis 2, it says, um, Both the man and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. But now, the second they, they sin, they, they feel overwhelming shame. Then the man and his wife heard, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now, instead of having this beautiful, shameless relationship with God, now they're, they're scared of God, that they're hiding from Him. And He called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Did God not know where they were? <laughs> I mean, of course He did, right? But it's all throughout Scripture you'll see God kind of meeting us where we're at, right? Relating to us almost on our, our level. E- even all the images here of God, you know, breathing into Adam's face and, and walking in the garden and, and wondering, where are they? You know, it almost portrays God in, in very almost like human-like ways. Um, the technical word for this is anthropomorphism. Um, God or human-like characteristics that are often ascribed to God. Why? Because, God, from my van, I, from my perspective, I think you know God is so wholly other, so different than anything we can even imagine that we we can't even conceive of what God's like unless He describes Himself in more human-like characteristics. Yeah. If,
2: if there was a- What, how did they, be, I mean,
0: I've only heard it spoke
2: of as God as this grand, yeah, walking, like we would reference Jesus' aspect of God. Yeah. But that's
0: where my brain goes. What would they? Oh, the, yeah, I think, I think they would say what I just said, the anthropomorphism. All throughout Scripture, you have human-like descriptions of God that aren't literal. It's just the only way we could, so they, they I think they would say God wasn't literally walking, it's just...
1: Like, What's that? Like it was
0: a spirit? Uh, yeah. Um, God is spirit, and the Jews would agree with that. So I think they would say, you know, somehow he was communing with Adam. But the only way we can conceive of that is thinking of it in kind of human-like terms. Yeah. I mean,
2: does it yeah. reference like the cool, the cool of the evening and all that stuff in the original Jewish like Hebrew? Like does it go that deep into it?
0: Um, I mean, that's that's what the Hebrew says originally. Now, some Jews might have extensive commentaries um, that... It
2: just sounds like a
0: physical... Yeah, yeah. Regard. Well, we see that a lot throughout the Old Testament, though. A lot of really physical descriptions of God. Um, this, I mean, off the top of my head, like when, when Moses sees God's glory, um, God says, well, you can't see my whole glory, but I'm going to stuff you in the crevice of this rock. And I'm going to have my glory pass by you. And it says that Adam, or sorry, Moses saw like God's back. <laughs> like he can't see the face, the front of God's too much glory. So he saw his back. It's like, what does that even mean? It's does he have a back and a front and skin, you know. Um, so throughout scripture, God's often described that way. But I think that the Jews would, I think they would say the same thing that um, they, they obviously wouldn't say this could be like a Jesus uh, they would just say it's just a metaphor. It's not a real thing happening. Now, um, and again, I don't want to throw out too many questions, but I mean, is this just like, you know, the, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Was he literally walking or is it, or is it just a metaphor? Or did he actually manifest himself in more human-like forms? As a Christian, we know he kind of is okay with doing that, right? <laughs> he, and, and there's other times in the Old Testament when um, God manifests himself in, in human-like forms, obviously ultimately in Jesus. Um, so I, I would be okay with, with this being uh, not just a metaphor, but God actually did, manif- did take on a human-like form and, and literally walk in the garden. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's the only way to read the passage, I'm just saying that it's because of Jesus, we should be okay with that being a possibility, yeah. In
1: Genesis three, eight, it's given in a negative context because they had already sinned by that time. But what I've, I mean, I've always read this verse, and it's always um, impressed upon me I don't think this is the first time God appeared to Adam in the garden and in the cool of the day. And I've just got this imagery when I I read this verse that God appeared to them regularly in the the Garden of Eden. And they had intimacy with him Hmm. on a level that uh, hasn't occurred since Hmm. because they were unfollowed creatures. That time yeah, and yeah. It, it just speaks to me of the closeness that God wants to have with us as yeah created beings, and why were we created? Yeah. And this cool of the evening when we when hmm. we typically think of working a long day or being tired or being hot, you know, which they probably weren't, but it just still speaks to me as God coming at the end of the day, says, put your arm around mm-hmm. Adam and says, Hey. Hey, yeah. How you? Tell me about today,
0: Yeah, yeah. That's good. You
1: know, and just uh, that he's so intimately involved in every aspect of our life, and wants that in
0: right. relationship. Right. That's good. Yeah. You, you have uh, like a just a naturalness of this. Almost like this is what he did every evening. Yeah. 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 No, that's good. That's good. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely wasn't the first time. Uh, he's hanging out in Eden because, I mean, this is the whole picture in Genesis 2 is God communion with Adam and being intimate with, with Adam and Eve. That's good. Um, I got a question. Yes. Um, are there,
1: what scriptures are there
0: that reference who Satan is yes. So, uh, yeah, that's, okay, great question. We don't see a lot about Satan in the Old Testament. Um, there's a reference, well, let me say this. There's a possible reference in Job chapter 1. Um, there seems to be a rather clear reference in 2 Chronicles, uh, I forget which one, um, I think at the end of 2 Chronicles, um, there's a, a reference to like in Job, in later in Job or in the Psalms to like a, a beast of the sea or a dragon of the sea, which might be referencing Satan. But there's, so in the Old Testament, there's not a lot of details about Satan. Ezekiel 28 <clears> might <throat> reference the fall of Satan. Um, it, 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 even that's a little, it's... It, so is that where we get when we, it was
1: like a bad angel and yeah, he wanted to yeah. be like, it,
0: just like yeah. the God, and so he gets, yeah. yeah. Our knowledge of the... Um, fall of Satan comes from two passages both are not very clear quite honestly Isaiah 14 uh, 12 to 14 and then Ezekiel is a a bit clearer clearer, but not still to my mind not crystal clear Ezekiel 28 um, oh I I think it's like I think it's actually 12 to who knows maybe maybe 14 or 15 you know depends on and, and I say it's not clear because Isaiah's talking about the king of, I forget, Ezekiel's talking about the king of Tyre, Isaiah is talking about another human king, but then it's almost like he drifts into a description of these human kings, it's like, whoa, whoa, are you talking about the king, or are you talking about the thing empowering the king, you know, um, so it, it is a little ambiguous, but yes, all, our, I think, here's here's my uh, little hobby, hobby horse, but I think yeah, we Christians grew up with a real ironed out story of how Satan fell. It's not that clear in, in scripture. Um, I think this one, if you read this passage, it's like, yeah, okay. That, this this seems to fit that kind of description of, you know, um, Satan being a lofty um, angelic being and he got jealous and fell. But the word Satan never occurs here. Um This passage uses a a phrase, the star of the morning, the morning star. And do you know what their Latin translation of morning star is? You do You do know it, but you don't know it. Uh, Lucifer. (laughs) So the very term Lucifer that we say is another term for Satan comes from a later Latin translation of this passage, which people assumed is talking about Satan. Now, um, I mean, many really good well-established theologians don't think these passages are talking about Satan John Calvin famous John Calvin big theologian from the Reformation he said this isn't talking about Satan and then um, you know he wrote commentaries on the whole Bible and um, he was halfway through with Leviticus Ezekiel then he died so we don't he got to chapter 20 so we don't know what he would have said about <laughs> um, Ezekiel 28 but um, that's way more than you're asking. You asking. Just so, about like what is So
1: it, it's not really accurate to say, to actually
0: say, "Oh, Satan was a colony." So. I, I wouldn't say accurate. I wouldn't say it's not accurate. I would say it's it's there's more ambiguity on Satan's pre-fall existence than we than we know. He had to have been created, okay? Because God's the only one that's not created. Um, he is some kind of angelic spiritual being. At some point. I don't think he was created evil, right? So at some point, he had to have gone from good to evil. So, so just logically, I think it makes sense, you know, uh, a fallen spiritual being, you know. Was he jealous of God and all that? I think some of the details, you know, where it gets a little bit fuzzy, we have to at least hold those with, with an open hand. Yeah. So then it's making
1: me think. So, I mean, we, it starts with the cre- creation. So before creation, there was a lot of things created that was, Right, I mean, the yes. angels had to be created, like yes. so they
0: were probably with yeah. like the, the whole, yeah. like yeah. angelic. Yeah,
1: when something exactly with God that yeah. we really don't even see, right. but
0: we But there's no references of it. There, there's subtle allusions. Um, for instance, for instance, in Job, you're really pushing me here. So, uh, Job 38, um, I think it's verse six. It says the the. The sons of God, which is another reference to angelic beings, sometimes angelic beings are called sons of God in the Old Testament. Uh, when God laid the foundation of creation, the sons of God sang for joy, meaning they were already there. <laughs> they were there when God was creating this, the universe and they were celebrating and rejoicing when he was creating it which says, oh, so maybe sometime before Genesis 1 you know, is when God did all that. We, we just don't know. Maybe it was in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe, maybe that's when he made the spiritual beings, because then he doesn't really get into the details of creation until verse 3. We just, we just don't know. There's just not a lot of details on it. Yeah, uh, John. Yeah. So, for the Old Testament, you Zechariah, Oh, yeah. Satan's standing against... Yes, is another <laughs> passage, yeah, right? yeah. And then, what's interesting in the New Testament is there's, like, this obscure verse about Michael the archangel mm-hmm. disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You see that he's somehow appearing in the New Testament in some form. We, we have a lot more details on Satan in the New Testament. Uh, lots of talk about Satan, the devil... Um, and there's just a few, but I mean, I, there's a lot more details. The, the New Testament's way more descriptive of the spiritual realm than the Old Testament. Old Testament typically doesn't really go there too often. The Book of Daniel does. It starts to really go into details, and you have references like in yeah the one you referenced in Zechariah about Satan accusing you know Joshua the high priest. Um, I can keep going on questions if you want. This is opening up more and more. <laughs> Usually, this conversation doesn't come up until I get to Ezekiel, but that might not happen until twenty twenty-two or something. So, all right, let me just finish up a few things here. Um, uh, what does Satan attack? I mean, he attacks the Word of God. Yeah. He attacks uh, the Word of God. What what God has said, God's promise. God's command, God's declaration of who he is. And and I just point that out because you do see kind of fundamental things about sin and rebellion and shame and our our disconnect with God now. Um, And uh, oftentimes it comes down to our not believing God's word, not trusting God's word, Uh, adding to God's word, you know, don't eat from the tree or don't even touch it. Um, questioning God's word. I mean, you got to think like, what's wrong with eating a piece of fruit? Why? We start to justify it, right? Like, well, I don't know. Like, that can't be that bad. Looks good. <laughs> it's a great piece of fruit. It's going to bring me pleasure when I eat it. Doesn't God want me to be happy? So instead of just believing, when God says, don't eat from this tree, period, we start to kind of rationalize our decisions away. Um, and I just see that, that pattern, in just be real with yourself and your own sinful moments. You know, oftentimes it, it's us kind of rationalizing things away and even, you know, um, thinking if this brings me pleasure, if this, this looks good and it's probably going to make me happy, it probably looks like a healthy piece of fruit. <laughs> um, and yet Satan gets in and, and, and causes us to question God's word. Uh, We don't know, oftentimes the fruit is portrayed as an apple. Um, It never says what kind of fruit it is. What's interesting is in the Middle Ages, um, the the Latin, uh, oh shoot, I'm going to, I think the Latin word for evil sounds like apple. I think. Don't quote me on that, just. But there was a kind of a joke in the Middle Ages where people would say, you know, oh, they ate the evil or whatever, and it kind of sounded like apples, so they, it kind of formed in the Middle Ages that they ate from the apple, whatever. Uh, but there's, there's no reference to an apple in, in the actual text. Um, one more thing, and I'll let you go, because I, I kind of raised this question earlier. Uh, what's wrong with knowing good and evil? The Hebrew word know... Can be used in many different ways in the Old Testament, or even in the New Testament, and um, I mean, in in, uh, in Genesis four verse one, the literal translation was Adam knew his wife, and she became pregnant. <laughs> so he didn't just you know uh, interview her, right? I mean, there's there's the, the word know is is. Um, can can be used of even something like sexual intimacy or other things. The word know can also be used in the sense of almost like knowing better than or, I mean, I say, you know, determining. And I think that's the sense here is that just knowing right from wrong, knowing good from evil, that's not there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we want. But we want to trust God to determine what is good and what is evil. And if God says do this and don't do that and stay away from this, and we're like, well, why not? He's like, you know what? just trust me on this one. We need to follow his, his word. We need to not go against what he says is good and evil. So th- this is what um, seems to be going on here is by going against God's command and knowing good and evil, they are becoming um, their own authorities, moral autonomy. Um, the word autonomy literally means uh, self law from autos and namas, namas law, autos self, self law, you're a law unto yourself, you you determine right and wrong, you are your own authority, Um, which is incredibly relevant for 2020, (laughs) for just our modern western world where this is the default, we determine who we are we determine what is right and wrong. If something looks good, it brings us pleasure, it's not hurting anybody. Like, we have this natural bent to form our own kind of ethical system of right and wrong, and this goes all the way back to our wonderful ancestors in the garden who kind of established that pattern in in the garden. Yes?
2: I don't know if I'm even going to ask this the right way or if it's going to be said, but the whole determining how do we reconcile or um, I guess divorce
0: yeah in the Old
2: Testament where it seems like you know that wasn't part of God's plan you know but he let them do it so it's almost like it was real time determining huh does that make sense with with the
0: divorce yeah. command or allowance exactly. and so
2: Moses allowed it yeah and then God comes back and says no that's not what I meant I gave that to you because of
0: yeah why that might be, oh, I don't know if that would be related to what's going on here. Um,
2: or even plurality. Yeah. Marriage. I mean, like there were certain
0: things that were written in Scripture, but it yeah, be, does that make sense? Kind, uh, I'm a little fuzzy on, on, on it. Um, to, to To respond to that, I mean... Um, by the time God meets Israel in Egypt and gives them the law in, in the book of Exodus, um, he's kind of meeting them where they're at, but not revealing to them like a, a perfect kind of ultimate ethical system there. So maybe I, I to, to connect to your point, they, yeah, they were kind of absorbing kind of their own view of right and wrong when God... Yeah. In
2: some sense of
0: the word. That, that, that their system of right and wrong was kind of evolving through time, kind of re- evolving this way, and then God meets them where they're at. And yeah, we'll get into that more when we get to Exodus and the, and the law, because that can get really complicated and complex. Yeah. A we'll, couple more questions, one more question, clarification. Oh, before I forget, oh, hold that thought, just because I'm, just came to my mind, I need to, um, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be here for the next two weeks, right, two weeks, oh, I thought it was going to be one week, I was trying to get on a later flight, I just couldn't get there in time, because I wanted to be here next week, but so I'm gone next week and the following week, okay, so uh, pass the word to anybody else who wasn't here, Um, uh, yes, your question, though.
1: Uh, Well, no, it's more kind of a comment, but
0: like when children
1: don't know evil
0: because they're just innocent, it's nice. So if they're walking in the garden and there's been no fall, it's just nice, perfect. Yeah. You don't need to know evil if there isn't any. Yeah. I don't know. That kind of age of yeah innocence, where they yeah, and that's you know the Catholic Church has this age of innocence that you know was it seven years old? Prior to seven, you're kind of Totally innocent, you know. It's like you don't—you're not old enough to know when you're rebelling or not. So you're—you're—you're. But once you're once you turn seven, then now you're responsible, which I think is a little arbitrary. There's, um, but but there, there is that idea that I think, um, well, even the Bible talks about intentional and unintentional sins. Sometimes we can sin and we're almost not even realizing it, and that we're still sinning but it's it's the, the gravity of that i think is different and we see that in the old testament because there's degrees of punishment even in, or you know there's this phrase throughout the old testament of so and so sinned with a high hand is is kind of high-handed rebellion like they know right and wrong and they say i'm going to do what i'm going to do deal with it yahweh kind of posture And that's about where we ended. It kind of trailed off there at the end. Sorry about that. But uh, we pretty much closed in prayer about 60 seconds after that final uh, statement that we're wrestling with. So, yeah, I'm going to be out of town for the next two Sundays. So if you are a part of this class, um, then uh, please don't come to class this Sunday or the following Sunday whatever this Sunday is. So this is uh, to the, today's Thursday, if you're listening to this when it was released. So this coming Sunday, I don't know what that is. Um, it's going to be the second Sunday. I, th- I think it's, uh, what is it? It's the ninth, right? February 9th. I'm not going to be doing Old Testament in the raw. And then also the 16th of February. See, all it took was a little math on my part. So yeah, for the next two Sundays, I'm not going to be here. So um, uh, if you are listening from afar, which is probably point. of you. Uh, It's going to be a couple weeks before I release another Old Testament in the raw, but I hope you've enjoyed these Sunday school conversations. I know Sunday school for many churches is is a thing of the past, but I'm trying to bring it back. I'm trying to go old school and just say, why not just spend an hour and 15 minutes every Sunday digging into the text of scripture? Why not? It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt um, I think a lot of people might actually enjoy it, so let's let's do this thing. Let's let's get it back. Let's 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 get back to studying the Bible um, in in-depth in ways and asking really thoughtful uh, questions about the text of Scripture, so that we can have a more informed, and comprehensive, and biblically based understanding of our Creator, whom we worship. So, if you want to support the show, you can go to theology. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) theology. You can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And if you can't support the show, that's totally cool too. I'll keep cranking these out and making this class available for free. So until next time, I hope you keep studying the Bible, keep reading the Old Testament, and keep engaging God in intimate and profound ways. He is our transcendent creator. And he is our intimate friend. Let's, let's hold those both in a healthy tension uh, this week. We'll see you next time with the All Ra. Take care.